kind of meander back to your seats. Let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Y'all ready to get in God's Word? Man, I've been excited about this one. I, uh, I went on a little small vacation with just my immediate family this week, and man, the Lord just, He gave me some really good time in the Word, and He started showing me some stuff, and and so I've got like three sermons. We'll be here for a little while, but it's going to be good, I think. And, uh, you know, I tell, I, you know, the guys that, uh, that I talk to a good bit about, you know, my preaching and how to preach, and I'm certainly no expert. I really don't really know what I'm doing. I just study the Bible and just start running my mouth, and God does his thing. So I, I've always tried to go by that. And I have been convicted over the years of not doing this rightly, especially when you, when you listen. And I do try to listen to... And excuse me, I got a little bit of a head cold, but listen to different pastors and preachers and teachers that that teach homiletics and and the art of preaching. And so, I think that there is some benefit to that. I really do. But I don't I don't know how you can put any one person in a box and say, well, this is how you have to do it, and this is how you this is how you can't do it. Except maybe saying, well, you must preach and teach the Word of God. I think that is the the rule. That is the anchor point. That is the that is the baseline that we must must go by. But as long as one is preaching and teaching God's word and doing it in context and preaching and dividing it rightly, I think that there's a little freedom there. But I say all that to say I, I prepared a sermon last week, and um, where'd it go? I pre- what? The? I know I just had that. Oh, oh, it's right here. And and I'm supposed to finish that sermon this week. Uh, but literally, the Lord has just poured out so much on me. What I'm going to try to do is I'm going to finish the sermon from last week because I think the information is crucial to understanding what we were saying last week about my messenger, the messenger that came to prepare the way, and we established that that was John the Baptist last week from the con- the immediate context in Malachi and then uh, through New Testament uh, revelation and, and further revelation, progressive revelation, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with their accounts of who John the Baptist was and what he came to do and how he did that. And we looked at several different things last week about John the Baptist and the way that he prepared the way. And we established some truths there as well that he didn't do it with, he had no soft clothing, he had no fine cuisine, he had no subtle compromise, and he had no cultural caution. And I was fumbling around there because there were so many accounts, but I did want to go back. The last verse that I was wanting to read to you was actually out of Matthew chapter 3 to finish off what we were talking about. And there's so much more that could be said about John the Baptist. But to finish off, the way that John the Baptist, the the posture of his attitude as he prepared the way in the desert, making straight the paths of the Lord, his attitude was one of no subtle compromise. He didn't compromise the word of God. He didn't compromise the message that he spoke it just exactly how he had been told to preach it, to teach it, to 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 prepare the way, that's what he had done. And not only was there no compromise, but there was no cultural caution, meaning that it didn't bother him. He wasn't cautious about how he spoke the message in fear of what the cultural leaders might do to him, okay? We find ourselves in a similar situation, and it's a similar situation every single day. We find ourselves right now, particularly in a situation where we're our 
our views, our thoughts, our understanding of what truth is is being challenged by the outside world. But this is nothing new. This has happened throughout history. <coughs> it will continue to happen throughout uh, uh the times to come we just have to figure out how did they deal with it how does the bible teach us to deal with it and what are we going to do about it and we looked at john the baptist and we pulled out several different things i do want to spend just a second longer on that last thing because i read you not a bad uh, verse but it was not the one that i was wanting to to read to you about john the baptist turn your bibles with me to matthew matthew chapter 3 and i'm sorry if i'm going a little bit fast this morning but i do got a lot to say and i want to get it all in so matthew chapter 3 okay um, verses, uh, we'll start in verse 4. Now this is where we were talking about that John the Baptist had no soft clothing, he had no fine cuisine, he had no subtle compromise, and he had no cultural caution. And I want to say unto you that you are John the Baptist. The Bible says that there was no, no greater man than John the Baptist up until that day, but it goes on to say, but that he doesn't even compare to those that will come after him. Why? Because the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that he proclaimed would be indwelling inside of them and that they wouldn't prepare the way for the Messiah but that they would speak the truth of the Messiah in real time. So John told them there's one coming that will baptize you in fire and you now is, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized with fire and you are the fire of God. Uh, uh, the, the fire of God that the gates of hell cannot prevail against, okay? Now, we'll get to that a little bit later on. But you are the fire of God if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. Now, look at the message that John preached. And I would say that we are to preach the message in the same way, but with even more power, okay? So it says here <coughs> in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food uh, was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now we see people that uh, wanted to hear John's message. They wanted to hear the message about the coming Messiah. They wanted to hear what the, the, the prophet had to say, who was even greater than the prophet. They wanted to hear. And so they would go out to him. So there was those who were uh, curious. They were those who wanted to know. They were enlightened to the truth. They were drawn to the truth. They were drawn to the message of the gospel. They were drawn to the message of the coming Messiah and the kingdom being at hand. And they were going out. <clears throat> but what we will see is another group of people. Well, I'm going to have to slow down a little bit and I'm going to lose my voice. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But... But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you to come out here? Who said I was talking to you? The Lord has struck me this past week. Because so often we can become reactionary instead of responding. And the Lord taught me to the pro through the Proverbs that the world is expected to be the world. And, and, and everybody's saying, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. And for the worldly outsiders, those who are outside of the faith, those who are outside in the world, they're actually right. Paul teaches us as much in Corinthians. We have no part in judging outsiders. But you know who we should judge are those inside the church. And as John came forth, 
There were people coming and wanting to hear the truth of the message of the gospel. And then there were the religious leaders, and we can't get this mixed up. They were the religious leaders, but they were not true believers. But they were culture setters of that day. And they were the ones promoting false truths and false ideas about who God is and about what was right and about what was wrong. And John had no fear of them whatsoever. He had no caution uh, as, he, as he brought this message that would completely turn the political system, the cultural system, the religious system upside down. We cannot be scared, church. We cannot be scared. We can't be mean. We can't be hateful. That's not biblical either, but we can't be scared. We must find that balance. We must look to the man in the middle who was the most balanced individual, the God-man, the mediator between God and man. So with that being said, let's look now at how Jesus Christ, in my opinion, what the text is, is speaking of here, how Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that would do what the old covenant could not do as great as it was as great as it was it could not do because of the weakness of man and the evil wickedness of man Jesus Christ would do by becoming the fulfillment of all of those laws all of those rituals all of those sacrifices and he would live the life that they could never live and he would become true Israel through which Anyone who had faith in him would also become true Israel and all the promises of God would find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. One person got it. Praise God. Amen, sister. Preach it. All right. Here we go. Turn with me to Malachi and uh, when you get there, say amen and then we're going to pray. You're already there, bro. Don't lie to me. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please uh, get me out of the way up here, God. I don't, want, I don't want to get in your way. And I pray, God, that your message would go forth. It's all kind of jumbled up in my mind, God, and I'm just leaning on you. And I pray, God, that it would glorify you and that it would come forth clearly and it would come forth with power and conviction and that it would not leave us the same, but that it would create in us a burning and a yearning and a desire to to shine brightly and to burn hot for you God I pray Lord that we would catch fire this morning and that the world would not have an uh, an idea what just happened and that you would use us God to give warmth to the to the cold and the weary that you would use us Lord to shine the light in dark places that people might see how they can overcome the world. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So Malachi chapter 3, <clears throat> we're going to pick up now and we're going to ask the question, who is the messenger of the covenant? And I'm going to move kind of fast through this because I think we already know who the messenger of the covenant is. But what I want to do is I want to reaffirm and reestablish who the messenger of the covenant is. Covenant is, And I want to point out a, 
a few truths about the messenger of the covenant as revealed here in God's word in Malachi with immediate context. And, and I want to tell you about this new covenant using scripture. But then what I want to do is I want to try to move through to, ch- to verse 5 of chapter 3. And I want to talk a little bit about the refining fire and the purifying fire that's coming, that it's here in our perspective, that's coming in his perspective, and how that works and how the kingdom of God is ushered into the world through fire, okay? So if I had to entitle my message today, if I can fit it all in, and I've got a fire extinguisher here because it might get hot up in here, Uh, and and literally it might get hot in here, okay? So what I want to, if I had to, to, to title my message today, it would be fighting fire with fire. Fighting fire with fire. You guys ready? All right, you got your thinking caps on? All right, no, nothing, nothing easy but simple enough a child can understand but deep enough that it will transform our lives. Amen? All right, all right. This is the sign that the boys on base when we play baseball that they got. Everybody do it like this. No, every, I'm not even going further. Andrew, everybody's got to do it, bro. All right, all right. All right, <laughs> here we go. All right, so who is the messenger of the covenant? The messenger of the covenant. I won't spend a ton of time here. Um, <clears throat> I talked a little bit about it last week, but I want to show you just a few things. So let's look at Malachi chapter 3. And let's just pull this straight from the text and see if we can kind of uh, glean a little bit of wisdom from it. It says, Behold, I send my messenger. We already established that that was John the Baptist through immediate context and exegetical work through the, through the New Testament. And it says, And he will pre- prepare the way before me. First clue. That John the Baptist, who is my messenger, it says that he will prepare the way before who? Come on. Before who? Me. Me. We're saying Jesus, but the text says me. We'll get to Jesus. I believe you. I, I agree. But it says that he will prepare the way before me. <clears throat> now, who is Malachi speaking for in the Old Testament here? It's not a trick question. Yahweh. God. Okay? He's speaking for God. Now, I don't know if you ever made that connection. It's a very simple uh, little sentence, and you may just read right past it. But he says here, Malachi is speaking for Yahweh, speaking for God, speaking for Jehovah. He says that I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. What we go, well, and it's going to be established even further, that what we see is, is that the Lord is the one who is coming. God is the one who is coming. Now, don't get mistaken. We're not talking about the Father here, but we're talking about God. We're talking about Yahweh, who we understand to exist through biblical teaching in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all equally God, but distinct from one another, okay? One God, three persons. One what, three who's, okay? I can't get into that. I don't have time this morning, but we, we have a Trinitarian understanding of of who God is, okay? We'll see the distinctions here in the text that the Father is going to prepare the way for the Son, and both are God, and there's only one God, okay? Now, let's look into the text, and we'll see. But we see here already it's being established that it is God who is saying through the servant Malachi, through the prophet Malachi, that I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, okay? Fair enough? All right, let's keep going. He says further, he says, and the Lord whom you seek. Now, we're going to do a little bit of work on the fact that he's saying that they're seeking the Lord, but he's just spent two chapters talking about how they're not seeking him, how they're not delighting in him. So we're going to look at what he's talking about there because it seems kind of odd when I read that, so I dug a little deeper, and I think I I got an understanding. It says here, and the Lord whom ye seek, you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, another one we'll look at, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, okay? 
But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can, in, uh, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. We're going to talk a lot about the refiner's fire and the, and the fuller's soap. But let's go back up here. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, we have two words here. Keep that up there. No, go back to verse 1. Okay, check it out. We have, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. Prepare the way before me, and the Lord, now I want you to look here, uh, I don't know why this is like this, but it should say L, L, capital L, small O-R-D, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says this should be capital L-O-R-D of hosts. This is the tetragrammaton right here. The second Lord is a different word than the first Lord, Okay. So not a ton of time on a tetragrammaton, but this is the name for God. That's the official name for God that is, in English, the transliteration would be Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels there. Vowels have been, have been um, put in so that we would be able to even say the name. So we would, we would translate that Yahweh, okay? Now, <clears throat> some people did import and there are several different words for Lord. And, and God, Yahweh, is also called Adonai, Elohim. There's different words for Lord. And the word Adonai is another name for God, uh, depicting who God is. And that would be spelled with a lowercase O-R-D. That's the way that most English translations, who in here has an English translation that the second Lord in your Bible says capital L, capital O, capital R-D? When you see all caps L-O-R-D, just know that that's the tetragrammaton, that is the, that is the name of God, I am Yahweh, okay? And when you see Lord, even when it's speaking of God, that it's not a lesser depiction of him, but it's different ways of characterizing who he is, attributes that he has. I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but it's different names of God, different ways to describe him, different titles for God, okay? So uh, the Je Jehovah and Yahweh are usually the same name, but they have different transliteration. They have a different what, different um, vowels put in them. Jehovah is Yahweh as well, but it uses the vowels of Adonai to put in, and that's where we get Jehovah's Witnesses. But we are actually the true Jehovah's Witnesses, just so you know. They do not really witness to Jehovah or about Jehovah. We do. But Jehovah, Yahweh, same word most of the time. Now, why do I say that? Because what we see here is, is that we're going to establish that Jesus Christ is the one who is spoken of here by Malachi when Malachi says that my messenger will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. And it says here <coughs> that uh, before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now he says he's going to prepare the way for me, and I'm going to come into the temple. The Lord whom you seek is going to come into the temple. This Lord right here, the first Lord right here, and if you got your notes from last week, I put this in there for you. If you don't, go back and check it out. Is Ha-Adon, the Lord. Now this is the root of Adonai. So this is speaking of Jesus Christ and gives him the title, the title Lord Adonai. You say, well, that's distinguishing that Jesus Christ isn't God, isn't Yahweh. No, it's not. Because we see in, and I don't have time to go through them, but Exodus 23, 17, Isaiah 1, 24, and Isaiah 3, 1, and in several other places as well, that Ha-Adon, Adonai, is used of Yahweh as well. But this is the way that the scripture is using, that Malachi is using, that God is using to distinguish the, first, the second person from the trin of the Trinity from the first person of the Trinity. Now, are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay. <laughs> Amen. 
<clears throat> All right, so what he's doing here is he says God is coming and God is sending God and there's only one God. Now we understand that this is, this is hard to wrap your mind around, but we've got to deal with the Bible and every implication that it has. The Bible teaches very clearly that God the Father is God, Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God, and there's only one God. Remember, one what, three who's. Is that, I'm getting some funny looks. You understand that? That's tough to understand? Remember that deity is a quality. Deity is a quality. Personhoods are the quantity, okay? There's one humanity in this room, but there's about 250 persons. We're all human, but there's about 250 persons in the room, individual persons. There's one Godness. There's one God, but there's three persons that make up the one God. One what, three who's, okay? We can talk about that more another time. But what we see here is that Jesus Christ is established as the messenger of the covenant who is coming and he is equated here with God distinguished only by the different titles and uses of the names that's given here now I don't want to spend a whole lot of more time there is everybody in agreement here you need more evidence that Jesus is God I think we I think we hold to that pretty well so who is the messenger of the covenant he is God Okay, so God is going to be the one who is coming in the new covenant era as the messenger of the, of the new covenant and, and as the messenger that will, uh, that will do what God has been speaking about and foreshadowing through all of the Old Testament uh, stories, people, law, rituals, everything, the land Everything was pointing to the messenger of the covenant and the work that he would do to make what was promised actually come to fruition, okay? <clears throat> now, let's move forward a little bit. So we see that the messenger of the covenant is me, the Lord, and we see that he is designated as the Lord whom you seek, and that first word, Lord, is Ha-Adon, which is uh, a different way of speaking of Yahweh, but it is God of the Old Testament, the one true God, the creator of everything. And he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, not to spend a ton of time here, but we know that Jesus Christ, this is the last book of the Old Testament. This is the last prophetic word that was given before the, inter the intertestamental period that lasted about 400 to 450 years. And the next thing we see is what? Boom, Jesus Christ shows up out of nowhere. And who is right before Jesus Christ? John the Baptist. Doing what? Preparing the way, making straight the paths in the desert. So the prophecy came true. <clears throat> and then we see Jesus Christ who shows up on scene. He's dedicated in the temple. And, and very, very soon he finds his way back into the temple. His parents are looking for him like, what in the world is going on? And if they finally find Jesus. What was he doing? Teaching, preaching in the temple. And he's like, where did you think that I would be? And, you know, it was almost like, I don't know how old he was, maybe 10, 12-year-old Jesus would be like, Mom, did you not read Malachi? I was coming to the temple. I left you a note, you know? And, and so <clears throat> we have Jesus Christ here who does show up on the scene, uh, scene suddenly after 400 years of complete silence. We see Jesus Christ show up, and it says that, <clears throat> it says, that the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it will, it will talk about his coming and what happened after his coming, but I want to pay attention one second here to a couple of words here that, that I thought kind of strange. We'll see how much time we have to spend on it. 
Um, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the actual content of the New Covenant message today, but if you'll go back to these notes that I gave you, I did lay out um, Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 33 lays out pretty well the New Covenant that, is, that, that, w- that God will establish through this messenger of the New Covenant, and uh, we've taught on that a bunch here at the well, um, so I don't want to spend a ton of time. I've got some other things I want to show you today, but just understand that the New Covenant is the fulfillment of all the old covenant. It's not a replacement. A lot of people think that old <coughs> and new means replacement. And in some ways, the new covenant does take the place of the old covenant, but not in such a way that the old covenant was bad and evil, and he threw that one out and now establishes the new covenant. That's not the way it works. But that the, the, the old covenant was, was really perfect in every way in doing what it was intended to do. And that was to pave the way and point to the needed Messiah because of the wickedness of humankind. That every human being ever born after Adam was completely wicked and evil in every thought and intention of his heart continually. And that they could not meet the requirements and the and the the stipulations of the old covenant and therefore all the promises of God were lost without the fulfillment of that old covenant they could not be the people of God and God dwelling in the midst of the people and and I will be your God and you will be my people and so on and so forth that all of this it wasn't a failed system it did exactly what it was supposed to do and that was scream you're going to need the Messiah you're going to need a savior there must be blood so it did exactly what it was supposed to do in leading to the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ and so the new covenant does not replace the old covenant like that it, it simply fulfills the old covenant and it and it fills up every nook cranny and crack of the old covenant that it that it <coughs> that it transitions from the old covenant into the new covenant by fulfilling everything and I don't have time to get all into that if you want to go listen to the Galatians series I did a lot of work on the new covenant and the fulfillment of the old covenant by the Lord Jesus Christ and the transition and the way that Jesus Christ fulfills the old covenant let's suffice it to say that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant in which the promises of God would be given to any nation not just Israel but to all nations all Gentiles through faith in him as he is their new federal head. So before Jesus, we have a federal head in Adam. And in Adam, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every human being. See, we, you know, I made this post on Facebook about this evil wickedness. But what people don't really understand is, is that everybody should be mad at me because I believe all of y'all are evil and wicked. Heck, I believe I'm evil and wicked. I believe that every human being apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is evil and wicked. And, we, and, and not only, I'm not judging them. I'm not judging them. Everybody thinks I'm judging them. I'm not judging them. I'm just pointing out a fact. They, they don't need me to judge them. The judgment of God, the wrath of God already abides on them. I say this so that they would escape the judgment. I didn't put the judgment on them. I'm not the judge. I'm just a proclaimer of the truth. And <clears throat> it's not just homosexuals and transgenders. That, that, no, 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 no. It, it's for the drunk. It's for the greedy. It's for the parent that thinks that they're doing everything right, but they're not training up their children in the way that they should go. That, and they're not providing for their families. Let me tell you something right now. If you've got somebody that has gotten a girl pregnant and he's out on the weekends and he's drinking and getting drunk and he's not providing for his family, then that guy is worse than an unbeliever. 
He's worse than a, he's worse than a homosexual. He's worse. Why? Because he's not doing what God has called him to do. You see, I believe everybody's wicked. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I believe everybody's wicked. I'm going to show you that here in just a second. I, I hope to get there. We got to move. Hey, but the, everybody did get finished at like 10 till 11 a day, so I got like 20 extra minutes of preaching. <coughs> the Lord must have knew. All right, well, let's go a little bit further. So the one who is coming suddenly comes to his temple. The one who is coming is the messenger, the angel of the covenant. We could do some more work on the angel of the Lord. It's beautiful throughout the old covenant. I believe that's a Christophany. I don't have time to get into that. But we see Jesus Christ showing up in history in many different times, okay, many different times. So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 really lays out very clearly the, um, the, the, the new covenant and the, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. But the cool thing is that Malachi 3 is going to kind of show us how that transition works, how we move from, and, and let me put this in as simple terms as I can, because many of you are still, many of you are still trying to do what the old covenant was, was telling the Israelites to do, not knowing that it will never, ever, ever lead you to the promised land. It will never lead you to the place of peace and prosperity and a land flowing with milk and honey. You're trying to do what the old covenant was trying to do. You're trying to meet all the requirements of the law. <coughs> You're trying to meet all the requirements of holiness. You're trying to be righteous by your works and by your good deeds and by your actions, not realizing that, that you can't. And the fact that you can't is why you're you're, you're, you don't have rest, you don't have any peace, you have ter constant turmoil, and you wonder, why do I feel good today and bad tomorrow, good today and bad tomorrow, bad today and good tomorrow, why is it like this? And what you fail to realize is that you're trying to work your way into heaven, you're trying to fulfill an old covenant that's already been fulfilled for you, and all you need to do is rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that Jesus Christ is the way that the old man dies and the new man is born. You cannot work your way into good graces with God. You cannot twist God's arm and make him love you. It does not work that way. And so I, I say unto you today that, and this, you say, well, I don't try to follow the, the old covenant law. I don't, I don't try to do that. You've just replaced it with different things such as church attendance or how many times a day you read your Bible or how much you give at church or, you know, how many times a day you don't cuss, <laughs> you know. All these things were like, I'm good, I only said four swear words today, you know. That's just silly. That, that the way that we measure our oneness with, the, with God Almighty Yahweh is by our, uh, by our proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether or not we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, do we love Christ? Do we pursue Christ? Are we filled with Christ? Are we on fire with Christ? Do we have passion for Christ? Do we love the world more than we do love Jesus Christ? Do we love anything more than we love Jesus Christ? Do we love our children more? Do we love our wife more? Do we love our husband more? Have we got anything on the throne where Jesus Christ is supposed to be sitting? This is the, this is the God. And, and your works, your, your actions will and can be evidences of how close you are to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are not to gauge whether or not we're in Christ by our works, but that we that the Holy Spirit is a seal for us, and that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is to be evidence to everybody else around us that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't try to go the old covenant way. Don't try to go the works way. Don't try to go the law way. We're not under the written code anymore, but we're under the law of grace. We're under the law of Christ. So anyway, let's move on. Let's look at this <coughs> this um, the one coming is the one in whom they delight. Now, um, okay, I want to, I'm just going to kind of 
move pretty quick on this because I, I hope that we'll see our reflection in this mirror. Okay, I'm praying that you'll see your reflection in this mirror if, if, this is, if this is you and that God might be able to enlighten you to some issues that you may have that you may need to overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Okay, so in, Zech- in uh, Malachi <coughs> chapter 3, it says this. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, <coughs> says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now, it, it was very odd to me that when I was reading this in Malachi chapter 3, that it says, the Lord whom you seek and the Lord in whom you delight. That is, that didn't, I was like, wait a minute, what? I just read two chapters of you saying that you're bringing false um, sacrifices, you're, bring, you're bringing blind animals, you're in here, you're crying at the altar, but you're not for real, this is all a joke, that um, you, you're, you're spreading false messages, you don't really love me, you don't really seek me, you don't really delight in me, and now he's turning around and saying, the Lord whom you seek, he's going to suddenly appear, the one in whom you delight, he's coming. What, wait a minute, what? I, you just said they weren't seeking you, now you say they are. Well, I want to show you here where I, what, what I think is going on. I've got two, um, two commentators. I think one doesn't get it right and one does get it right, just to kind of show you that I'm not out, on, I'm not out in left field here. <clears throat> but look back up with me to chapter, I'm sorry about all this, uh, chapter 2 of Malachi. Look at verse 17. I want to show you something here. What I believe here, I think we have holy sarcasm. sarcasm. And I'm being serious. I think we have godly sarcasm, holy sarcasm here. I believe what God is doing here is like, you've been seeking me all this time. You're about to get what you're looking for. You think that you delight in me? We'll see when I show up. And I think that's, that, that, that shows itself in, the, in the, um, the, the verses that come right after too. And we'll, we'll kind of open that up and look at it a little bit too. But look here. I think this is a sarcasm because of what they're saying about God. That he turns it right back around on him and will say, okay, let's see how that works when it's pointed at you. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Now, we already know from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 16, that he's established that they don't seek him. They're, they are there. They are seeking him in one way, but they're not really seeking him. It's an irony, right? Because in seeking him the way that they are supposedly seeking him they're pushing him farther away he's like when you come like that I don't want anything to do with that I'm going the other way so they seem to be seeking him but really they are pulling themselves and pushing themselves further apart from God because of the way that they're coming in verse 17 it says this you have wearied the Lord we talked about this a little bit last week you have wearied the Lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him by saying now check this out Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Same word used, and he delights in them. You see the wickedness. He said, you are, I'm sick of this. I'm getting weary of this junk. I I read it that way, okay, Brandon's uh, translation. God's saying, I'm sick of this. What are you sick of, God? How are we making you sick of this? Because you keep saying that everybody is good, that's evil is actually good and that I delight in them. Now he's going to take that same word delight and he's going to turn it around and he's going to say that you supposedly delight in me. We're about to see if you actually delight in me. <clears throat> With that in mind, check out chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek 
will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I would, I would say this, that the way that he's suggesting that they delight in him is the same way that he delights in sin. They don't. They don't. Right, let, me, let me share a couple of commentators' um, words on this. Robert Alden, and, and I use these commentaries a good bit. This is um, from the, um, the commentary set that I have in my office, um, exegetical commentary. He says this. He says, the phrase, whom you desire, is interesting. Even in their sins, suggests 2.17, the people longed for deliverance through the Messiah. I say, Brother Alden, you are sharp, but I don't know where you got that. I don't know where you got that. This would suggest, and this is just a note that I put here just thinking. This would suggest that they actually did desire the Lord Messiah in their deepest being, but only acted contrary to their desire for God. But does this fit with the context? You see, if Alden is right and that there was a hidden desire and that they came wrong, they didn't seem to be actually truly desiring, they seemed to be manipulating God to get what they actually desired, but Alden is suggesting that deep down, though, they really actually did desire the Lord and God saw it deep down. Does that sound like a, a theology that you've heard before? Yes, it does. It's a cultural uh, American theology that says people aren't really that bad. Deep down, they're really good, and they really are actually seeking the Lord. We just have to cut away down to all of the bottom of this. Listen, listen to me. The Bible emphatically states that there are none righteous. There are none good. I'm quoting here if you didn't know. Not even one. There are none, still quoting if you didn't know. There are none who seek God. <clears throat> when we go therefore into the world and saying that you're really a good person, you're, you're really okay. You just need some tweaks. You are heaping up lies, and it makes God sick. It makes God sick. You don't have to go and spit in everybody's face and say, you evil, wicked, heathen, puh. You know, no. I was just reading in uh, Proverbs chapter <coughs> 9 that, uh, that you don't even re rebuke and reprove a, a, a wicked, evildoer. Because it gets you jumped on. It gets you bashed. What you do is, is that you show him a better way. You show him a better way. And you do that, yes, you can't compromise truth. But you say, listen, you're wayward. You're outside. Let me show you how to come in. There's a better way. There's a better way. I've got to do a better job at that. I've got to learn that. I'm, I'm off topic. Let's go back. Now, if Alden is wrong, and I read that commentary, and it just didn't sit in my mind, I'm like, I'm thinking you're wrong, Alden, but he's way smarter than I am. He's wrote, wrote a commentary. I've not, okay? But I'm reading that going, and everybody makes mistakes. I make my own. Anybody ever, ever made a mistake? Yeah, me too. So I'm going, that doesn't seem what the text is teaching to me. I wonder if there's any other opinions. And I already have my opinion, but the opinions of man are really worthless. Let every man be a liar and God be the, the, the one truth. So I said, let me, let me read. I, I think... I, and I, and I did find several other different understandings and interpretations. But listen to what Alexander McLaren offers. <coughs> he offers what seems to me to be a better exposition of the text in light of the surrounding context. He writes this. We next note the aspect of the coming which is prominent here. 
Not the kingly nor the redemptive, but the judicial is uppermost. With keen irony, the prophet contrasts the professed eagerness of the people for the appearance of Jehovah and their shrieking terror when he does come. He is the Lord whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant is he whom you delight in. But all that superficial and partially insincere longing will turn into dread and unwillingness to abide his scrutiny. The image of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap imply a painful process, processes of which the intention is to burn out the dross and beat out the filth. It sounds like a prolongation of Malachi's voice when John the Baptist peels out his herald cry of one whose fan was in his hand and who should plunge men into a fiery baptism and consume with fire that destroyed what would not submit to be cast into the fire that cleansed. Nor should we forget that our Lord has said, For judgment am I come into the world. He came to purify, but if men would not let him do what he came for, he could not but be their bane instead of their blessing. The stone is laid. If we build on it, it is a sure foundation. If we stumble over it, we are broken. The double aspect and effect of the gospel, which was meant only to have the single operation of blessing, are clearly set forth in this prophecy, which first promises purging from sin, so that not only the sons of Levi shall offer in righteousness, but that the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem shall be pleasant, and then passes immediately to the foretell that God will come in judgment and witness against evildoers. Judgment is the shadow of salvation and constantly attends on it. Neither Malachi nor the Baptist gives a complete view of, of the Messiah's work, but still less do they give an erroneous one. For the central portion of both prophecies is his purifying energy, which both liken to cleansing fire. They're seeking the Lord. They're seeking the Lord so that he would make their life easier. But the Lord who they seek, they don't understand that when he comes, he comes with fire. That they will not be able to stand when the Lord comes. Now, I think we've established <coughs> an ironic, <coughs> sarcastic understanding when he says, the Lord whom you seek, uh, the, one, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. I think we've established that some irony there, that it's, uh, it, it's pointing to the fact that he delights in, that they delight in him as much as he delights in sin. Now, why would I point all that out? I point all that out to say that we need to be very aware of what we're doing, of of. of what we're seeking, what we're longing for, what our delight is in. And I would say that what, you know, that, that we need to examine our hearts, that we need to make sure that we're paying attention, that we're not looking to God for the blessings that he could offer, but that we're coming to the, to the Lord for the blessing that he is. Why are you here this morning? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why or how are you contending for the faith? How are you being one with God? How are you doing that? What are you doing and what are your motives that we need to do as Paul says and examine our heart to see whether or not we be in the faith? Well, I want to show just a few things here and then I'm going to get to the fire. Okay, 1133. That's, we're doing good, actually. I was surprised. Okay, so let's look here. 
at a few different things. It says here that this messenger who they are supposedly seeking is coming and we're going to see if you actually want him to come and are seeking him or not. And this is how he is coming. If you have your notes, we're on eight and we're about done with this and then I can move into just some other stuff that, that I want to get to. Three things about his coming. Three things about his coming. <clears throat> the first, it, it asks this question. Who can endure the coming of the Lord? Who can, who can endure the, the coming of the messenger of the covenant? Who can endure it? The second thing I ask is, who can stand? And then the third point is, is that he's a refining fire. He is a purifier. He is like a refining fire and a fuller soap. He is a, uh, he is a purifier, a refiner, one that cuts away the evil and only leaves that which is good. Now, I want to point out something here just as a way of setting up what I'm about to do in a minute. Let's see if you've been paying attention. Is there any who are righteous? Let's set apart the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Outside of Christ, for outside of those who believe and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been imparted with his righteousness, outside of that reality, are there any righteous? Are there any righteous? Any righteous? Even one, the most innocent among us, any righteous? Okay. Now, if it's true that when the refiner's fire comes and all unrighteousness are burned up, who is burned up? Everyone. Everyone. Okay? Now, remember, we've set aside the messenger of the covenant who will give and impart. You guys familiar with the word impart? Imparted righteousness? We've talked about this a few times. 20 seconds on this is that no human being has any righteousness of their own. We're all born with original sin from our federal head, Adam. It came through him. We are born in sin. We have a sin nature. There's none good, not one, no, not even one. So there's none righteous, not even one, okay? The way that the Lord Jesus Christ saves you, that, that the way he makes you one with God is that he makes you righteous, okay? How does he do that? He does that through being righteous, okay, and then becoming sin and dying in the place of sin and experiencing the death that only sinful human beings experience and then resurrecting from the dead, ascending into heaven and sending the Holy Spirit to bring and impart or give, implant his righteousness into you and to kill the flesh, the sin nature, by the power of the cross. So you are died, you've died in Christ and you are raised in Christ. You understand? Christ died the death you should have died so that you will live the life that he should have lived. Whereas he died, now you can live. Why? Is because he fulfilled the will of God. He fulfilled all the old covenant, the laws. He fulfilled the ritualistic sacrifices. He fulfilled the moral code. He fulfilled the Decalogue. And he fulfilled the will of God in general in place of the Gentiles that, the, that, every, that every aspect of God's will and righteousness might be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you are joined to Christ in faith by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, his righteousness is imparted to you. It, you it, it's placed on you like a coat. And when God the Father looks at you, instead of having wrath towards you, he has love and acceptance towards you because he sees nothing but the righteousness of the Son of God. 
That's why, you, that's why you are to not identify as sinners anymore, but you are to identify as saints. You understand? In Jesus Christ, you are saints. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, we do have a continual work of sanctification by which we become conformed to the image of Christ. But all that means is, is that the old man is dead. He's there. There's no penalty of sin for you anymore. Okay? The power of sin is being overcome, and the presence of sin will be eradicated when we receive our full adoptions as sons, when we cry out of a father, when we are with him in the heavenly realm. Now, that's imparted righteousness. Why am I setting it all up that way? It's because when the messenger of the new covenant comes, his message is going to be that when the Messiah comes, he is going to burn it all to the ground. And all unrighteousness will be as a puff of smoke, ash. And the only thing that will remain is a pleasant and pleasing offering unto the Lord God. How can we stand then? How can we stand? You say, I don't know if that's true, Brandon. I want to show you just a couple of, and I've kind of, I've, I've veered off of this right here. I'm going to keep veering, okay? All right, <clears throat> let's, let's go. I want you to look with me. What I want to establish first of all is that, now, now some people think this is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he's going to wipe everything out. I don't believe that. I believe there are some things in here about the second covenant, I mean the second coming when you get over to chapter 4, but I don't believe that's what he's talking about right now. He could, remember, he's talking about coming to his temple. He's talking about uh, destroying the strongholds. He's talking about refining with fire and purifying so that the offerings might be acceptable and pleasing to God. Okay? I think this is the front end of this. The day of the Lord, the second coming, is when he'll completely eradicate all sin. But he is destroying sin even in his first coming, his resurrection, ascension, and the sending back of the Holy Spirit to earth to, to dwell in the midst of his people through the individuals. What my argument is going to be is that the work that Jesus Christ started in his, in his first coming, in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he's continuing to do in you today and that you are the fire of God that comes and burns up all unrighteousness. Amen, I'm telling you. Ah! All right. Woo! Come on, if that don't light your fire, as Hambone says, your wood is. I'm telling you, people, you got to quit sitting around. you got to quit being like, oh, this message is long. Man, we're the fire of God in us, people. Are you the people of God? Is the fire of God burning in your bones and you can't hold it in? we got to get fired up, guys. This world is going to take you got to get fired up. If you fired up, you preaching the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. The world don't stand a chance. The world don't stand a chance. Train your children up to be what? To be limp-wristed hippies that just love everybody? No, you, you train them up that they would be warriors of God, trained with the armor of God, trained in sharpened sword, trained with bows and arrows to fire the, 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 the faith, the gospel into the schools, into the, into the workplace, into every area that the, that the world would be overcome with the power of God and the gospel that they cannot withstand. Listen, that text... That text, it says that on this rock I build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have this crazy idea that the gates of hell are marching toward us. Gates don't move. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The rock on which God is building his kingdom. What does that tell us? Gates don't move. The church moves. That we are to be invading the spaces that God 
that the, that the enemy, that, that, that Satan thinks that he's won. The gates of hell are right here, and, and the children of God who carry the fire of God, who carry the gospel of God, are marching on the gates, and the gates can't stand. They can't prevail. They won't hold. We're going to knock them in. We're going to kick them in. We're going to knock them down. We're going to pull them down, and we're going to lead people out. What does it say in Jude? Snatching others out of the flames. We're going to bust the gates open. We're going to be pulling people out. Y'all just sitting there. What is wrong with y'all? <laughs> All your, all your kids' friends is, is, is literally has the fire of God. The, God, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, I said that, that, that God is an all-consuming fire. Literally right now, many of your children's friends are burning in the flames of hell, and they don't even realize it yet. And you're sitting by, just be like, oh, he's a cool kid. He's not a cool kid. I don't know if he can come over tonight. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the kid is literally burning to death in the fires of hell, of the wrath of God that already abides on him. Kick the freaking door in. Grab him. Yank him out. Snatch him out of the flames of hell. We're so sleepy. We're so sleepy. We're so lazy. We're unwilling to get our hands dirty. We're unwilling. Well, I don't know if I'll say it right. I don't. This is embarrassing. Man, forget that, man. Forget you. Forget me. Forget your pride. Forget what they think about you. Forget all of that. King Jesus. We cannot worry about what the world thinks about us. We cannot worry if they're going to lock us up. We cannot worry if our kids won't be light because they won't be popular. I don't care. That's good. I don't want them around my kid anyway. We have to train our children up. We have to sharpen them as arrows, brother, and fire them into the heart of the enemy. We got to kick open the gates of hell. If you won't do it, who will? That was like 10 minutes I didn't have, but God is good, and we got to get on the move. I don't know what else I can say. I'm praying that God will transform my heart because, man, I get sleepy. I get weak. I get pathetic. Get to worrying about what this person or that person thinks, what this person or that person says. I don't care about you. I don't care what you say about me. Do you care about what they say? I, I want to know what God says about me. I want to know what God's going to say about me when I stand before the Lord of heaven, before the Lord of hosts. I want to know what he says, and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to go after people, snatching them from the flames of hell, rescuing them. Turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, let's go, uh, Isaiah 6. <clears throat> okay. Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah seeing a vision of the Lord and the, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, now, now remember, okay, this is why I'm going here. Okay, let's, let's put a little rhyme and reason. So in Malachi chapter 3, that's the book we're studying, okay, so, so you don't think I'm just rambling. Malachi chapter 3, he says that the messenger of the coming is coming. Who can endure it? Who can stand? Okay? He says he is going to be like a refiner's fire 
and like a fuller's soap. He is going to refine and he is going to purify. And the result will be offerings that are pleasing to the Lord, offerings that are brought in righteousness and that he will make Judah's offerings pleasing to the Lord. If you want to be pleasing to the Lord, you have to be purified and you have to be refined. How does that work and what happens? <coughs> Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Now, what I want to present to you is a picture. And this picture is drawn many different ways in the Old Testament, okay, many different ways. This picture here uh, is one of fire, and so I believe that, that this is another recapitulation. This is another way to, to tell of the same history, to tell of the same narrative, to tell of the same prophecy of what's going to happen when the, when the mediator of the new covenant comes. <clears throat> Look at uh, chapter 6. It says, I mean, yeah, chapter 6, let's go with... Um, yeah, let's just go in verse 1. Read along with me. I'm going to try to read a little fast. We've got to move. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's the Lord of hosts. <coughs> the whole earth is filled, uh, full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, here's, here's what happened. <clears throat> Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord fill the temple. He saw the smoke. He saw the fire. He saw the all-consuming nature of God. And he's like, I'm dead. Why? Because, the, because of the reality that he already knows that you and I have established from the Scripture. Why? Because he knows that nobody can stand before the Lord and live. Why? Somebody tell me. We just talked about it. There are none. There's not even. There's none righteous. So Isaiah knows, oh, I'm dead. Woe to me. I, the Lord is here. Oh, no, I'm dead. Everybody knew that knew God and knew their Bible knew that when God shows up, everybody's dead. Unless he provides provision for them. The only way a human being can stand in the presence of God is if God has mercy and grace and covers them and purifies them. Otherwise, they're dead. We see this multiple times in the Old Testament. You remember when the guy reached out to touch the... the Ark of the Covenant that was moving along. He was wanting to help God out. Dead. Why? It's because the, the glory of the Lord and the presence of, the God, the presence of God is so righteous and holy and pure that when it comes in contact with sin, it, it's, one's got to go. And sin will, will burn up like chaff. And if there's no righteousness there, if there's no provision there, if there's no way made by God for you to stand in his presence by granting to you righteousness, then there is nothing there that would stand. It would all burn up. And so Isaiah cries out, oh no, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm, I'm a dead man. Watch what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me <clears throat> having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs 
from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay. Okay. We see a shadow here. We see a principle here. Let me ask you this. What is a coal... What, what, what is a coal that is taking from the altar, what, what, is, what are some necessary properties of it? If that, if that altar is the altar of God and, and it's, it's burning bright and, and the sacrifice has been made, what's the coal going to be? Hot. Fire. It's going to burn the sin out. The sin is going to be taken away by the burning of the sin. Now, we could go into this whole long thing. The Old Testament is beautiful in typology and foreshadowing and looking to the substance of Christ. <coughs> but we know that <coughs> Christ is the altar. Christ is the sacrifice. Christ is the coming Messiah that would not only be the fire, but would be the sacrifice. Not only would he be the high priest that offered it, but he would be the sacrifice itself. And so we see Isaiah here purged of his sin with the fire from the altar of God. He would be purged from. Uh, he would be purged of his sin with the coals, with the fire from the offering that was made unto God. So we see this established here that that one must be purified with fire. You see the title now. We fight fire with fire. Now keep in your mind that when the fire of God comes, no one can stand. No one can endure. So we. Not without provisions. So we understand that when he asked the question, who can endure? Who can stand? That we say from this perspective, no one. No one can stand. Watch this. Now I'm going to make some connections here. You're going to have to try to work with me. But if you want the, the text uh, that, that I'm going to be sharing with you and, and you want to talk about it more, hit me up Facebook, talk after, whatever. This is really cool stuff. But uh, I don't know, you know, I, I hope it, glory to God, it comes out right. <coughs> All right, now watch what happens after he was purified. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then, he, then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Now, once, once Isaiah is purified with the fire from the altar now he has a message that he's going to say. This is the prophecy. This is the message he's going to say to the people. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Uh, let me skip that part. Here, here am I send me. And he said, go and say this to the people. Say to, the pe say to this people, <clears throat> keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate land. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Okay. Okay. The preparation for the coming of the Messiah will be the complete destruction and annihilation of all wickedness. Now you say, well, doesn't that that only happens in the second coming. 
depends on what your eschatological views are. But since I don't even have time to explain what eschatological means, we're going to look at the new covenant and what happened when Jesus Christ came the first time. Time fails. But how I wish myself, how I wish I could grasp this truth and live it out. How I wish that I could communicate it to you. That what most evangelical Christians are looking for today, what most evangelical Christians think is going to happen in the, in, in the eternity, in the, ne- in the never, never, out there is actually what's supposed to be happening in, happening in the here and now. We have a theology that says Christ will defeat sin, defeat death, defeat hell one day out there in the second coming. And in some ways, that's true. The final defeat of death, hell, sin, and Satan when it's cast into the lake of fire is the second coming, the the great day of the Lord, the, the great white throne of judgment. But what if I told you And I've taught this to you many times. I pray it sets in in my own heart and yours. But what if I told you that that's already begun now here on earth and that you are the bearers of the sword. You are the bearers of the fire. You are the ones in which Jesus Christ is building his kingdom and bringing the heavens down to the earth. You say, where did you get that from that text? I want to show you something here. Okay, remember Malachi chapter 3, that Jesus Christ, the messenger of the, covenant, of the covenant is coming, and he's coming like a refiner's fire, and he's coming as a fuller's soap to purify and cause the offerings of the Levites to be done in righteousness. And when he comes, he's coming like a fire. Isaiah is, he's received a message of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the coming, of the destruction that's at hand. And if you want to see uh, John chapter 12 uh, explicitly states that when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple, he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? This burning of the whole force, this burning of the whole world, this burning away of the unrighteousness and wickedness in the land will be through the coming of the, of the messenger of the new covenant. How does that work? Because when Jesus Christ comes, everything is judged and laid bare. Everything is put under the wrath of God except that which is found in him. But we see here, let me, don't get ahead of myself, but we see here that everything's torn down. That everything's torn down. Okay. Lord. We have an idea that G, that people are essentially good. We have this, in the, in the world especially, but even we, we have this idea that people are, they're actually good. They do bad things, but they're actually good on the inside. But we've established that there are none righteous. No, not even. So when Jesus Christ shows up on scene, 
all wickedness is destroyed. I contend even the believer is destroyed. Even the believer is destroyed in his flesh, in his sin nature, in the person that he was. And if there is no removal of the old man, no death of the old man, then it proves that there was no birth of the new man. And you should be scared. You should fear, lest you fall into the hands of an angry God. That when Jesus Christ shows up on scene, <clears throat> wickedness has zero hope. Not that it ever had any to begin with, but that it has been proven to not be able to stand. The old covenant is fulfilled. Jesus Christ is vindicated and proven that he is the only one that can stand the fiery wrath of an all-consuming God. That I would suggest that the all-consuming fire of God is a good thing and a, and a horrible thing. That it's a purifying thing and it's a deadly thing. It's purifying because it's deadly. Now, if it's true that all of us are wicked in every aspect of our being and that when Jesus Christ comes, he destroys all wickedness and only that which remains is that which is, that has been provided for by God, then what we see is, is that all is laid waste and a new shoot arises. That, that this is the new birth. That the old man is dead and behold the new is come. So this picture is painted here that when the, new, the, the, the messenger of the new covenant comes, everything's gone. And that what happens is, is that those who are found in Christ, you'll start to see, just picture in your, your mind, a dry and barren wasteland that was plentiful with trees. And it's just laid waste. And all you see is stumps and fallen trees and smoke arising, uh, arising into the air and, and, and death and destruction. But then as the days and weeks go by, you see these little shoots start to pop up. Did you know that forest fires are one of the earth's way, God's way of replenishing a land? Because the ashes of those trees that were burned provides nutrients for those that would emerge. And what the text here is saying that <coughs> only the holy seed is the one that remains. Now, you can go and look up these if you want to write down uh, John chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through uh, 15. Also, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12, I mean, uh, chapter 11, verses 1, 1 through 10. We see that the Messiah, the, the, the coming one, is called the root of Jesse, son of David. And from this root of Jesse springs forth a new tree. And that new tree is the, is, is the tree of life. This is, this is Jesus Christ. And that tree is the church. That that tree are those who have been joined to Christ in faith and that his righteousness remained when all of their righteousness was burned off. And only those who are found in the Lord Jesus Christ are actually living even right now. 
Because the fires of God, the wrath of God, the Bible teaches us, abides on humanity even now as we speak because they have not believed on the one whom God sent. Through that devastation of the coming of the Messiah and through his resurrection and ascension, <coughs> the Holy Spirit has been sent to implant within us the abiding seed of God, which is the word of God. That seed abides. And, and out of Jesus Christ, we grow into the tree that is Christ. Jesus Christ is the tree. We're the branches. Okay, John chapter 15. Now, I want to show you something here. This is why we must necessarily, there's a ton more. I, I'm, I'm out of time, and it's, it's cool stuff. I, I hope to show you one day, but I want to show you this because I, I want you to understand this. Okay. Let's go back. Let's, let's, that's kind of deep stuff I know, and I wish I had time to flesh it out more. But what we know is, is that there are none righteous, no, not one. There, there are none out there who are great. We need to stop telling people, oh, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. That's not loving. But that we need to be honest with people and that we need to tell people, look, I, I know because I was there too. There's nothing good that dwells in me. And everything that's in me that's apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is being burned away. Our God is an all-consuming fire. And, and if, you, if you don't forget, when, when uh, John was preparing the way, he said as much. He said, look, there's one coming that I'm not, even, I'm not even worthy to untie and carry his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he baptized you with the Holy Spirit, with fire. Jesus Christ baptizes in fire. And the only thing that remains, this is why when, we, when we're walking in the Holy Spirit, that we become more holy. Because the Holy Spirit is the fire of God. And when we walk with the fire of God, then it burns away the sin in our lives. This is how the new covenant works. Is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness that's implanted in us. And his fire is burning off all of our sin and unrighteousness. Just like he's burning off every other sin and unrighteousness in the world. Through the gospel proclamation. The only difference is, the only reason that you're not consumed with the fire of God is that you're consumed with the fire of God. And if you're not consumed with the fire of God, then you will go up in smoke because there's nothing left to remain when the fire is there, when the fire has consumed you. But the fire will not consume the fire. The fire expands and, and, and it bolsters the fire and we burn brighter. But if the fire of God does not dwell in you, if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, then you're not one of God's children. And you will just be completely consumed because there's no righteousness there to remain. Let me show you by illustration. <coughs> Think of this as your being. Okay? This is all human beings are. Sin nature, flesh, love for the world, and evil. I don't care if you're a homosexual a drunk, a liar, a cheat, a swindler, a gossip, that all humanity is broken and they have been condemned in original sin by their federal head, Adam, that they, they inherited a sin nature. They are sinners themselves as well from that they came forth in iniquity from the womb. This is all that a person is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please understand that. And when the fire of God falls, and it is falling even now, 
And the, and the more clearly you proclaim the gospel, the hotter the fire gets for the culture around you and the non-believers and the wicked. That's why they hate Christians, rightfully so. Christianity destroys wickedness. It destroys greed. It destroys lies. It destroys your greed and your lies. You want to be more like Christ? You want to be a less sinful? Then you press into Christ and get closer to the Holy Spirit, that you walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. This is all we are. Now, this coin is going to represent the righteousness of God. Remember, he's a refiner's fire. And the refiner's fire throughout the Old Testament, what it does is, is that it melts down silver and it melts down gold. And what happens is when that gold is melted to a certain temperature, it becomes a liquid. <coughs> and that liquid uh, becomes purified as the impurities of the liquid rise to the top. That stuff that rises to the top is called dross. And what the refiner would do is, is that he would melt, he would put this, this gold into the furnace, into, a, into the pot, and he would put it under a, an, an amazing amount of heat, that he would put it in the fire to purify it, to make it better. And that as that dross would arise to the top, he would take a, a scoop that was specially made for this, and he would scoop the dross off, and he would throw it away. He would scoop the dross off, and he would throw it away until the gold was perfectly pure and there was nothing left but that gold. Because the gold could stand the heat, but the dross could not. The gold is Jesus Christ, is God. The dross is humanity outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is no gold inside the man, there's only dross left to be done away with and thrown into the trash heap and burned. You trekking with me so far? Another point. Even in the believer that has the gold, that has the righteousness imparted to them and abiding in them, they still have dross. They still need the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire of testing, the fire of trials. That's why God allows you to go through those things. In order to, to tear away and to burn away all the dross and the unrighteousness and the love of people's opinion of you, the love of money, the love of fame, the love of whatever, that it, that it might strip you and burn that stuff away. So just know that there will be fires to come, but they are done out of love. Now, you have people who are fleshly alone, and they do not have any righteousness inside of them to speak of. And that's all they are. But you also have people that they're still sinful. They still have a sin nature. They still have flesh, fleshly desires. They still have some love for the world here and there. They're trying to get rid of it. They still have evil coming at them continually seeking to devour them and that they are making room for this at times even if it's a lustful thought 
even if it's a questioning of God's call on your life, even if it's a gossip, a good juicy piece of gossip. You know, that's one of the worst sins in the entire Bible, but they have the righteousness of God that dwells in them, that's purifying them, and that's the only thing that is keeping them pure. They have that inside of them. Sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. I don't know which one's which. Maybe you're better than me. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to tell you apart from the world. Sometimes it's hard to tell me apart from the world. But you know, the fire of God, and I got this purple lighter for his majesty. The fire of God, it doesn't put up with sin. The fire of God, does, it has no room for any paper to be in here. There's no sin that can dwell in this place. It can't exist there. Now, I don't know which one of these is which, but that sin is fine as long as it stays away from the fires of God. But the closer it gets, hey, uh, there's a fire extinguisher here too if uh, things get out of hand. Let me step over here. The closer it gets. Hey, you know, in, um, in Matthew chapter 3, it says that, his, that Jesus Christ, John says of Jesus Christ, his winnowing fork, uh, translated elsewhere, that, that he's wearing his tongues. <laughs> that the closer that sin gets to the power of God, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the more dangerous it becomes for the sin. Which one do you think it is? Do we have fire alarms in here? Oh. We got a bunch of them in here. see, the fire of God consumes sin. It consumes all unrighteousness. Even as believers, we get closer and closer. Oh, y'all can go home smelling like smoke. Praise God. The closer you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more his righteousness is revealed. The more clearly those around you can see who you are and who Christ is. The more pure you are for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only thing that remains is his righteousness in you. And as you burn for the Lord, and as you are found in Him, this didn't work exactly how I thought it was going to. 
And it's getting really smoky in here. I can't. <laughs> Give me a bucket of water. This went south. <laughs> ah! Do you get the point? You know, all jokes aside, and that wasn't a great illustration. We learned. Ah! Don't, ow! <laughs> that was a better illustration. Yes. All right, the firemen are coming. No. When the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ come. When it came, when Jesus Christ came into the world. All right, well, we won't try that one again. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, he definitively and without a shadow of a doubt fulfilled all of the Old Testament covenant, fulfilled all of the law, and everything that you could possibly imagine. And he, he alone burned away all the sin. Burned away all the unrighteousness. And through being born again in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are imparted with his righteousness. And that we are born of his seed. And that when everything is laid waste. We will remain. And as that smoke sits in your nose. Let it be a reminder all day long of how Jesus Christ is the fire of God. And that the closer we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we press into the Holy Spirit, the more we walk in the Holy Spirit, the more clearly Jesus Christ's righteousness will be revealed in us. Let's all stand to our feet and as the band comes forward. The goofy things that we do to try to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you can see that Jesus Christ is the refiner's fire. That he is the messenger of the covenant. That he is the only way that we will be able to stand in the great day of redemption. In the great day of the Lord. When all hope is lost. Only Jesus Christ will remain. Respond accordingly.